So a few weeks ago, we, we challenged ourselves with this idea of being part of the culture, being in the world, but not necessarily being part of the world. And Jesus was a master at engaging the culture around him, but never once, never once did he ever water down the truth that he spoke into people's lives. Never once did he sugarcoat the kingdom of God for the people that were listening to him. And he really aggravated the religious leaders of his day. They were really, they were looking to trap him in his words. They were looking to kill him. Eventually, they would kill him. But he never, ever let that worry him. He never, ever let that um, affect what he spoke about the kingdom of God. But to the common person, to the everyday person that, was, that, was, um, that heard Jesus speak, those would be the people that this message would resonate with. Understand that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they considered the common people, which would be all of us, they considered them to be the reason why Israel why the Jews were under Roman oppression, because they are not living their lives correctly in the, in the sight of God, and God was punishing them. But these people, the everyday, they're, they're the ones that heard the message of Jesus. They're the ones that, that found power in the words of God. And Jesus will continue to teach at this festival of tabernacles in chapter 7. So I'm going to begin to read in verse 14. Not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews there were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having been taught? Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. So as any credible rabbi would do in his day, Jesus will cite his source. And his source is God. So his words, his teachings, they originate with his father. They originate with God. And to the religious leaders, this would rub them the wrong way. In fact, they would consider this as deserving death. That no man could say that he received words directly from God. This is, this is blasphemy. And Jesus will make a very interesting... Um, he, 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 he'll, he'll say, listen, it's, it's, not, it's not about theological training. But this, this all comes down to a heart issue. To, to have the will to do the will of God... That it's about a person's heart and a person's mind and a person's soul being focused on knowing God, on seeking after God. That, that it's about the person's life who is pointed in the direction of living a God life. This is much more than going through motions. This is much more than, than behaving correctly. This goes beyond morals and ethics. This goes right to the heart of faith. And faith is a very interesting character. Faith, it takes faith to please God. It takes faith to do the will of God. And sometimes, sometimes I'll be straight up with you, man. The will of God, the will of God doesn't make sense sometimes. When God calls you to do something, it might sound like the most harebrained idea ever. 
And, and when you start to share that with people, they might tell you that's the most harebrained idea ever. But it goes beyond what it looks like in the human realm. It goes into the very heart of faith. And you might miss, you might meet resistance from friends and family. You might meet that resistance inside your own head that says, what are you, crazy? That makes absolutely no sense. It takes faith to follow God. It takes faith to do the will of God, being sure of what we hope for and certain of those things that we don't see. It takes a determination, your heart, to press in and follow God. And those people, Jesus says, those people, they will know whether his teachings are from God himself or just from some man. It comes down to a heart issue. To recognize who Jesus is isn't up here. It's, it's in here. As the psalmist would write, the fool says in his heart that there is no God. And what intrigues me again and again is the common people. They would be his followers. The farmer and the fisherman, the shepherd, the uneducated, those would be the people that would go, this makes sense to me. And they would press in and follow who Jesus is. But the religious leaders, on the most, on the most part, most of them would reject him. They had a faith issue. They had a heart issue. We could say that they had heart disease and they just could not understand or fathom what he was talking about because he pressed against the very things that they wanted to believe. He challenged them in their religion. And so the people begin to question Jesus as a teacher. Jesus turns it around and begins to question them as hearers. Verse 18. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. Anyone whose message begins with himself. The person that, that person is seeking his own advancement. The person is looking to make a name for themselves. Look at me. Look at what I'm doing. Focus on me. But the person interested in, 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 the, in the kingdom of God, the person interested in the one who, who has sent them, that person has a different focus. That person is others-centered. Jesus will say that, that the one who seeks God's glory is, is true. He doesn't say that he will speak the truth. It's something much, much deeper. It says that he is true. Jesus never says, I'm speaking the truth to you. But Jesus will always say, I am the truth to you. And then he'll press deeper and he will say, there is no unrighteousness or falsehood in that person. He's talking about himself. He's saying, you know what? I'm not violating any laws here. I'm not doing anything wrong. And this is what, again, would rub the religious leaders the wrong way because they are constantly accusing him of breaking the law. He was constantly breaking what they considered the Sabbath to be. And we're going to take a look at Jesus and his idea of the Sabbath in, in a week or so. But he begins to contrast himself against his accusers. He begins to point out in them their own unrighteousness. 
And then we get to verse 19. And he says this, has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? In, in the Jewish tradition, um, the Jews pride themselves on receiving God's law. They pride themselves. They were the chosen people. They are the chosen people. And God chose them to instill his word, to instill his teaching, to instill his law to them. In fact, Paul will mention in Romans chapter 2 that the people consider themselves to have the embodiment of of knowledge and truth because of the law. But Jesus is going to press in a little bit harder. Jesus is going to go right to the heart of the matter and say, you know what, there's a difference in receiving the law And there's a difference in living the law out. And for us, we can say, there's a difference in reading the Bible. And there's a difference in actually living the Bible. There's a difference in going to church. And there's a difference in being the church. I find it very interesting, the battle over the Ten Commandments. Now, now you, you all know, like, they, they took the Ten Commandments out of schools, out of public schools. And then they took the Ten Commandments out of um, government buildings. And, and evangelical America just, America just, like, melted down. We freaked out. We can't do this. Uh, we're a Christian nation, which I don't believe we ever were a Christian nation, but you can argue with me Monday morning in your email. And, and so, and so, so we, we, we just get all in a tizzy about the Ten Commandments being taken out of the public schools and taken out of, of um, government buildings. But if we think about it, what if, what if the Muslim or the Hindu wanted to post their moral religious laws in the classroom? We would snap. We would have our picket signs ready. We would be protesting out in front of government buildings. We would be, we would be going crazy. We would lose our minds. You know, in the Bill of Rights, it says this. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. In fact, until that made the Bill of Rights, the Constitution wasn't going to be ratified. I guess that's the word. Um, So some would argue that a state-supported religion is not free. It's forced, which, according to the Bill of Rights, is prohibited. No matter what religion it is. Now, we can get into the big conversation of the separation of church and state. I know it was never meant to take God out of government. It was meant to take government out of God. And we like to just keep it really simple because doesn't that fit our purpose? Just, just ducky. I mean, it makes us feel so much better that we're right and everybody else is wrong. But I don't want to go there. We don't have to argue about that. This is, what, this is the point I want to make. That, that the people who have fought so hard to keep the Ten Commandments in those public places, in those government buildings, in those schools. The ones that would stand up with their picket signs and shout their protests in, in, in public so they can have their voices heard. Those are the very people that don't keep the Ten Commandments, that don't follow the Ten Commandments. Romans chapter 3, Paul says this, No one will be declared righteous in the sight of God observing the law, but rather through the law we have become conscious of our sin. The Ten Commandments are morality 101. And we, we can't even get those right. They remind us that, that, that we, at, at the very foundation of faith, we, we fail. We, we, don't, we don't keep the Sabbath. 
we, we, think, we think we have this idea that the Sabbath is that day where guys can just sit on the couch, watch the football game or whatever is on TV. I'm, not, I'm taking my Sabbath rest today. This, this, is, this is not to do any work. We have a misinterpretation of what the Sabbath is. Jesus worked on the Sabbath and got in trouble, and they killed him. So maybe we need to rethink of the Sabbath, rethink how we, how we, we, um, we celebrate the Sabbath. We don't honor our parents. We steal. These are, these are the Christians. We covet. They so want the iPhone GS. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm just, being, I'm just being transparent with you. And so the very thing we so strongly advocate that needs to be displayed in the public arena. Now, don't get me wrong. The Ten Commandments, they're a really good list. They, they are. And, and, and so, but not all ten are going to be um, so universal in other faiths. The first couple, they're specifically for us. But the rest of them, they're pretty cool. You know, don't murder, that's a good one. You know, don't kill, that's, that's, that's a good one. I mean, those are pretty good. They are good, but the people who fight so intensely to make sure that those are in the public arena, the very people who can't follow them, who can't, not don't, can't follow them. Jesus is telling the people, you accuse me of breaking the law and you want to kill me? You all break the law. And, and I've read this text, and I've read through back and forth. No one is committing suicide in this story. But yet they want to kill Jesus. It would seem that hypocrisy has been running rampant in religions for thousands and thousands of years, including Christianity. Now, Hypocrisy has the definition of to say you believe something you don't really believe. It's the definition of hypocrisy. To pretend to be something you're not. Now, we've morphed it in the cultural context to, to, to uh, mean a person who is two-faced. Somebody who, who says one thing and they'll do something else. We would say they are filled with hypocrisy. Barna, the polling, scientific polling research center, has done research and 85%, 85% of the people outside of our Christian faith believe Christians are filled with hypocrisy. That Christianity is, I'm going to say hypocritical, but that's like another book. Hypocritical, that's the word I'm looking for. Hypocritical, 85% percent of the people out there think we in here are hypocrites. And you might ask, well, how can that be? Well, let me give you some scientific data from a really great book that I'm reading called Unchristian that I would recommend highly that you all read. Has anybody got the book yet? Unchristian. Read it. This is, might be the last time that I actually teach from it, but I want to give you some of the insights that scientific research has found why we are considered to be hypocrites to the people outside the church. And it comes down to the way that we convey Christianity. The most common message people hear from us is that we are a faith of rules and regulations. And we 
have earned the label of hypocrite because people outside our faith measure us by our own standards. Hmm, ouch. When studies were done and Christians were asked, what is the most important part of your faith? And these are considered born-again, church-going people, not just the fringe Christianity that we like to... These are, these are people that are in church. They said, what is the most important part of your faith? And they weren't given uh, multiple choice. They, they didn't have to check off these, these items. They were given a blank line to write it in. And the number one priority that is part of our Christian faith that we Christians believe is lifestyle. That we would, we would live a life of being good, of doing right, of not sinning. And what's very interesting is statistically, there is no difference in the lifestyle of the Christian as opposed to the non-Christian. Statistically, yes, there's some percentage points that will separate us. But in the realm of statistics, the way our lives are lived are not much different from the way the lives of non-believers live. In the areas of drunkenness, pornography, adultery, illegal drug use, abuse. There is no difference. They did a study in the past and they took 30 days and they asked a group of Christians and they asked a group of non-Christians. Have you taken part in uh, viewing pornography online or any other pornographic material? Um, sex outside of the context of marriage, adultery, anything that had to do with what we would consider sexual immorality. And 30% of the Christians that they um, interviewed said, yes, in the last 30 days, I've taken part in those things. And 35% of the non-believers said, yes, I have taken part in those things. And statistically, there is no difference. They would argue if you put the Christians in one room and the non-Christians in the other room and you ask them questions, you would have a hard time figuring out who was who. Being good is the primary way we define our faith. Listen, don't get me wrong. Lifestyle is very important. James says that faith without deeds is dead. It's nothing. And, and sanctification and transformation is what we hope to subscribe to in our lives, that we become more and more like Jesus every day. But we have defined the priority of our faith as to not sinning. And, and, it, and it ranks way above discipleship, more than studying the Bible, more than evangelism, more than worship, more than relationships. Very few Christians believe that serving the poor in any capacity is a priority. And things like stewardship and, and nurturing a family faith in your family are almost non-existent. We have made our behavior the first and foremost premise of our faith, and it's killing us, and it's killing our witness to those outside the church because we are judged by our own standards. Two out of uh, two-thirds of all the people who attend church on a regular basis, which would be all of you, they say that rigid rules and strict standards are an important part of their church's teaching. So maybe it's not all of you. <laughs> and by all of this behavioral modification teaching by all of this strictness, three out of five people believe, three out of five Christians believe that they do not measure up to God's standards. You know, you ever, have you ever been in a relationship where you just felt like you never measured up? 
that you were never good enough. You know what? That is not a healthy relationship to be in. And it's not God's fault. It's, it's our fault. And if we Christians feel that way, if we feel that way, why would anybody outside of our faith want to engage in a relationship where they're never going to measure up to a certain standard? We try to live a God-honoring life. We try to live a moral life in hopes that we would gain passion for Jesus. But we've got it backwards. Our passion for Jesus should be the thing that dictates how we live a life. And so people, people watch us, people listen to us, and they notice us. And because of that, we've, been, we've become known for, for, a certain, for certain things. First of all, we're known as moralizers. We try to explain everything according to a specific moral compass, everything. Now, in and of itself, that's not so bad because usually it's, it's a biblical standard. Well, at least we say it's a biblical standard anyway, but obviously our lives aren't reflecting that altogether. We are known for our condemnations. We're known more for what we stand against than what we stand for. We love the picket sign. We try to attempt to put boundaries around everything, whether it's Christian or non-Christian. And so the standards we try to put on people and the standards we try to put on our society are the very standards that we are held to by the people outside the faith. And we do not do so good in living them. Jesus will teach that spiritual maturity goes way beyond behavior. Spiritual maturity is a condition of our heart, a condition of our soul. Behavior follows belief, not the other way around. And so all of us, the Christian, the Jew, the Hindu, the Muslim, the atheist, let's face it, man, we're, we're, we're all hypocrites in one way or another. But for us Jesus followers, let's, let's begin to stop thinking and acting like we are morally superior to everyone else. Remember, we are imperfect. It's time during this Lent season that we, that we would begin to live a life that's transparent in front of the world. Recognizing that perfection is never attainable. In fact, trying to be perfect will pull us away from following Jesus. Let's begin to be open and honest with our own brokenness and our own junk and our own mistakes. Let's begin to be open and honest with the mistakes of the church that we are part of, whether we have subscribed to those things or not as a church. Let's, let's begin to have a message of, of grace and, 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 and love. A grace that God has freely given us through Jesus. And if we can begin to live that grace, and if we can begin to engage that grace, we will finally accept ourselves. And then we can finally accept others without putting conditions. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
Grace lets us look at the brokenness in society at a very, from a very, very different, different way. Pornography and addictions and, and homosexuality, those are very complex issues that we just like to, to sweep away. But you know what? And, and I've said this before, Satan was not kicked out of heaven for being gay. He had a pride issue. And I've never seen a Christian protest in front of somebody's house. This guy's a jerk. He's arrogant. Right? But man, we, we love to jump on the marriage thing. Really, maybe, maybe we need to engage in a different way. Living in transparency, living in grace, allows us to see these things for what they are. They're complex issues that are, that are in people's lives, people that, that God has created and that God loves. And transparency and grace allows us, church, to be open and honest about our brokenness and about our struggles. Transparency and grace turns our heart back to God and away from some some dry rule book that we try to follow. And it's, and it's the heart of God that changes people's hearts. And if, and if our hearts are facing toward God, then we can bring other people to that place of facing their heart toward God. The way we treat people outside of the faith how we come alongside them in their struggles and in their brokenness, even if we think that what they're doing is sinful, that reflects spiritual maturity or that will reflect spiritual immaturity. Grace, transparency, dissolves hypocrisy. Why do we think as Christians, that we could legislate morality, that a law is going to change anyone's heart. Why do we think protesting will change hearts? Maybe, no, you know, protesting does change hearts. It hardens them. Let's change the, let's change the focus of the war we have called out on, on our culture. Let's change the focus to, to fighting against poverty and crime and addiction and injustice and disease. Let's come alongside the disenfranchised person, the disenfranchised Christian, the single mom, the orphan, the widow. Maybe we can begin to ask ourselves a very simple question. Why is it in our society that people feel much more comfortable in their local pub than in the house of God. Now, now you might say, well, because when they're in the house of God, they're getting convicted of their sin. Ugh, go back and listen to what I just talked about online. Listen, people were convicted of their sin when they followed Jesus. But they followed Jesus. Jesus spoke into their lives and said, don't, don't do that anymore. And they were like, thank you. And they followed Jesus. Why are people more comfortable in their local pub than they are in the house of God? 
I've spent time in a local pub or two in the past week. And so, um, <laughs> you know, and, here, and here's what I find. Listen, I am not, I am not um, condoning drunkenness. Please, and don't, don't take this that way. But here's what I found. And I'm not talking about a club where everybody's trying to hook up and doing the grind and all that. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking your local neighborhood street corner place, pub. And here's what I found in my experience. People are much more honest sitting at a bar stool than sitting in a pew. People are way more honest about their struggles and about their hurts, and about their brokenness, and about their life. And they're much more accepting of people for who they are without any pretense of who they should be. They're open, they're open to talking, and listening, and laughing, and enjoying life. They speak their minds, but yet they're still open to hearing the minds of others being spoken. They tell stories. They tell stories about their life. They tell stories about love. And they tell stories about mistakes. And they laugh. And they cry. I've had some of the most deep, profound conversations, spiritual conversations, sitting on a bar stool with somebody with a little bit of a buzz. You know, when you sit down at a bar stool and you order up a cold beer and they find out you're a pastor, boom, the door gets kicked open and they want to know everything. <laughs> it's like, thank you, God. Again, I'm not condoning drunkenness. I'm not, con- you know, guys, if you're in the bar every night this week, don't have your wives call me yelling at me. This is, not, this, is, this is about just places of open and honesty. Why do people feel comfortable, more comfortable in their local pub than in the house? Of God. It's because it's because it's because it's a place of comfort for them. Because it's a place of acceptance. It's because of a, it's a place where they can unwind. It's it's because it's a place where, to quote a great song, where everyone knows their name. It's no wonder that Jesus loved to hang around with a sinner. And so for us, this Lent, let's let's begin to look at our own lives. Where, Where have we been living a life of hypocrisy? Where have we been trying and trying and trying and putting rules and regs on other people and our lives just don't match up? Where have we been uh, less filled with grace in the context of of who we come alongside in our conversations? Are we being transparent with our own struggles, with our own brokenness, with the things that aggravate us, with the things that frustrate us, with the things that we doubt even within our faith? Are you living honestly with the people around you? Are you living honestly with with the friends that you have that, that aren't Christians? Do you even, do you even have friends? who aren't Christians. Let's not waste Lent this year. Let's let's begin on our own little corner of Knowles and Summit to, to live a life that's not filled with hypocrisy, to live a life that's filled with grace 
transparency, honesty. God, even though we are broken and we miss the point, you love us. And God, I continue to pray for us as a church that we would glimpse and understand what, how you love us, that we would understand how your grace operates in our life, that we would understand mercy, that we would understand patience, that we would understand honesty and openness, not for ourselves, God, but that we can take this into the world and begin to change people's perception of Jesus' followers. God, I confess that we have messed up. We're sorry. We don't want to be that. We don't want to go there anymore. Teach us how to love our neighbors as we learn to love ourselves. So I want to thank you for your grace, mercy, and the opportunity to stand before you and know that because of Jesus, because of his work on the cross, because of his death and his resurrection, we have been made whole and we have been reconciled back to you and that you love us beyond what we can ever, ever comprehend. Amen.